Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigan Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you. Whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Hello, hi, and welcome to this reloaded episode of The Emma Gunn Show. And by reloaded... I mean an episode that has proven to be popular with you, my most excellent listeners, so it seems worth revisiting. It's either an episode that has generated a huge amount of email correspondence, DMs or messages, or it has stayed in the top 5 to 10 most downloaded episodes on the podcast feed since it was published. And I tend to do these reloaded episodes towards the end of the year. Some people do compilations, but if you're a long-time listener, you'll know that the format of this podcast is long form. And every time I've gone in to try and chop out a chunk from an episode, I've ended up wanting to take around 30 minutes, which means that any kind of compilation would run for around three hours. And I want to respect your time. So whenever I republish these episodes, and I usually try to put a year between the original published date and when I republish them, I'm guaranteed to receive emails from people saying how they either missed it first time around and are really pleased they heard it because they didn't know it was on the feed, or they did listen to it first time around and something new jumped out at them from the re-listen. Or I get messages from people who have very recently discovered the podcast, who were hoping that this guest would be on the podcast, not realizing that they had already been on the show. So it always seems like a good thing to do to revisit these incredibly popular episodes towards the end of the year when people have a little bit more time to linger over their their podcast platforms and maybe have a bit more free time than they used to. This episode is with Dr. Rongan Chatterjee and he is an extremely popular guest. I think he's come on the podcast now three, four times and each time it's been such a meaningful conversation. He's obviously he has his own excellent podcast uh, which is one of the biggest I think in the UK and around the world is so hugely respected which is well-deserved success but he's so curious and he likes to have a conversation he doesn't just like to answer a question he's incredibly thoughtful and in this episode we actually were talking about his book which was published at the beginning of 2021 which is called Lose Weight Feel Great that in and of itself was something to unpick because saying lose weight feel great is a pretty controversial statement but he explains it in the podcast and he stands by why he called it that and he's curious and so he asked me about my own issues with food the struggles that I've had how I felt when before I overcame my issues or overcame I've said this before I'm in recovery I'm not recovered but um 
it felt like a very meaningful conversation just for me <laughs> to have this. And after I published it, the amount of people who really appreciated the compassion with which he comes at the idea of wanting to lose weight. Um, I just had so many messages. It was so, so, so wonderful. And I know that it has been useful for a lot of people because this is the point. A lot of doctors get criticized for uh, getting people on the scales in the doctor's surgery or making comments about BMI and not really looking at the bigger picture. And what Rongan is saying is we have to look at the other issues. We have to look at behavior. It's all very well to follow a calorie controlled diet. But if you go back to your normal and you get to a place that doesn't feel good or isn't good for your health, then that's what we need to really look at and interrogate. So um, I really appreciated the viewpoint that he had. And obviously, I will put the link to the book in the show notes. It's a good read. And like I said, it comes from a place of real compassion and understanding that it isn't just as simple as move more, eat less. There's a much, much bigger puzzle to try to overcome. And it can, it can take a lot of time. It can take a lot of effort. But the fact that you hear how he's on your side, you hear the experiences that he's had with people in his clinic, in his work as a GP, just makes his insights for me all the more valuable and helpful. So I will put the link to the book in the show notes. I will put the link to Rongan's podcast in the show notes. But here we go. Here he is reloaded. It's Dr. Rongan Chatterjee on The Emma Gunn Show. Dr. Rongan Chatterjee is making a very welcome return to the podcast in this episode of the show. It's Rongan's third visit to the podcast and it's always a genuine pleasure to get to mine his expertise for the benefits of you, my most excellent listeners. Now, Rongan is a doctor with nearly 20 years experience and he became a household name when he appeared on the BBC One series, Doctor in the House, where he would live with a family and tackle the issues that were affecting their health by looking at every aspect of their lives. It's important to mention that this is Rongan's trademark approach, a 360-degree investigation of someone's life to see how the bigger picture is affecting the ultimate goal. Another vital characteristic of Rongan's methodology is compassion. If you've ever visited a doctor and felt fobbed off or dismissed or not heard, and at this point, obviously, let's acknowledge how stretched and under-resourced health services are, but if that's ever been your experience, then Rongan is the doctor who puts down his pen looks away from his computer screen, looks you square in the eyes and asks you to tell him what's going on. Previously on this podcast, he has shared his insights on stress when we spoke about his best-selling book, The Stress Solution. And then again, when he returned to talk about Feel Better in Five, another bestseller that outlined a daily plan that takes no more than five minutes a day, but whose cumulative benefits will elicit overall health benefits. I mean, wonderful. Rongan's return is so we can discuss his latest book, Feel Great, Lose Weight. Now, some of you may hear that title and feel it's controversial. The implication is that if you lose weight, you'll feel great, right? And I know that for some people, hearing that will be triggering, it might be upsetting, or it might make you feel that you need to change or be better. There's no doubt about it. The subjects of weight, weight loss and body image are really difficult ones to approach. Whether your relationship with any of these things lies at the simple or complex ends of the spectrum, there is a chance that your relationship will be an emotional one and therefore you will likely see, hear and react to any discussion of those issues through that emotional filter. And what I've started to notice recently about topics that have the potential to elicit this kind of emotional response is a trend for content creators to apologise before they speak, or worse still, not speak at all. 
I hope I've always made it really clear that my intention with this podcast is never to trigger, upset or alienate anyone. But if I feel as though a guest's insights can be useful or helpful, then I'm delighted to share their expertise, experience and insights on the show. While it's regrettable to think someone might hear a conversation about weight like the one in this episode, and I also mean by this any episode where there is a discussion about weight and weight loss, I always keep in mind the person who may hear it and find it incredibly helpful. In response to a recent conversation I had on this show with Sally Hughes about intermittent fasting, I had an overwhelming number of messages asking questions about the benefits. Because Sally and I both do intermittent fasting, we both think it's brilliant. I don't do it for weight loss or weight management, I do it to sort my IBS symptoms out and so I sleep better. But I also had a really considered response from someone who pointed out that discussion of restriction, which is a component part of intermittent fasting, can be potentially triggering to anyone with a history of eating disorders. For me, and she's completely right, for me, as someone with a history of overeating, I benefit from discipline around food, but I totally appreciate that someone with a history of eating disorders might hear that and based on their own experience feel it's worrying messaging. It's for this reason that it's really quite challenging to walk the fine line around these subjects. And I'm telling you this because I was really honest with Rongan in this episode about my own uh, personal experiences. He asked me a lot of questions as we were talking about his experiences and his expertise. And I like Rongan, I trust him very much. And so I was very open during our conversation and I didn't edit myself as I normally would is what I'm trying to get at. But those are my personal experiences. But I am aware that what was helpful to me may not be helpful for you. Just please know that my intention is always, always, always to create episodes that support you, my most excellent listeners, and never to set anybody back or to shame you. This brings us squarely back to Rongan and his book, which explores the long-term, simple-to-apply habits for lasting and sustainable weight loss if, indeed, that is your desire or want. As long-time listeners will know, I battle my own demons when it comes to my relationship with food and my body image, but the biggest and most significant change I was able to make was when I stopped focusing on diet and exercise alone as the solution for the excess weight I was carrying around. And this is exactly what Rongan's book does too, and it's why I was so keen to get him on. Because it has been helpful for me, it's possible that there is someone listening to this for whom his experience and expertise will be helpful too. He's used all his experience and insight from 20 years of appointments with his patients to put together a book that allows you to take a step back. How many times have you heard people say that they are putting in the hours at the gym and or are eating all the right things, but they aren't making the progress they'd like? Rongan is simply saying that if you've only ever looked at what you're eating and how you're moving to tackle your own personal weight issues and you haven't made any progress then it would make sense to look at other areas of your life to see if they are having more of an influence than you realise. So, in this episode, Rongan and I discuss the emotional relationship we have with our bodies, the controversial topic of food addiction, why we can be trying our very best to be healthy and fall short for reasons that aren't our fault, how to break down your goals so they become enjoyable, how to have a healthy relationship with your bathroom scales, why how we talk to ourselves is a crucial part of our progress and how our emotional baggage and childhood experiences can influence our weight. And there's also so, so much more in here. Rongan was unbelievably generous with his time. Just, just before Christmas at a time when he was in huge demand and very, very busy. So I really appreciate him for that. The links to Rongan, the new book Feel Great, Lose Weight and the resources he mentions in the show will be in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. But please join me in welcoming back Dr. Rongan Chatterjee to 
The Emma Gunn Show. Dr. Rongan Chatterjee is back on the podcast. Hello. Emma, I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> Me too. And the other thing is, is that you and I tend to top and tail the years with each other. So it's become kind of like a routine. It's like a routine. Now, we're normally doing it in a hotel room in London in January. But mm-hmm. as is the way in 2020, we are doing this over Zoom, remotely. Um, <laughs> but I, I tell you why, why I think this can be different from most Zoom conversations. I've already built up a face-to-face connection with you. You know, we've had a laugh together. We've drunk coffee and tea together over a table. We've sat, you know, a meter away from each other, like looking into each other's eyes, connecting, talking about things that we're passionate about. So I would like to think that we can actually get beyond this electric screen (laughs) and actually get into that deep heart-to-heart connection straight away. So what do you think? I think the fact that we've just had to stop a 20 minute heart to heart that was about to eat into our interview time would suggest that we're going to be just fine. <laughs> and listeners. So my number on that is when I do my podcast now, I start recording the minute we're on. Because sometimes the gold comes before you start the show. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the golden nugget, as uh, my friend in TV always says, he does reality TV. Every time he hears it, he just goes, golden nugget. And then that's it. They move on to the next thing. But you have been on the show before and you have shared so much brilliant insight and wisdom on things like mental health, physical health, how to look after oneself, how to get mental clarity, how to center oneself. And they've been really useful insights. And the reason why we've got this time together is because you have a new book out called Feel Great, Lose Weight. And this is a subject I I really can go on about for hours and hours. And so I guess my first thing is, why this book and why now? So the decision to write this book was taken long before we knew what what was gonna happen in 2020. Um, It's an interesting twist to fate where I feel that this book is more relevant now than ever before. And why this book? That's a, there's many ways to answer that, Emma, because I don't think this book is what everybody thinks it is when they look at the cover. And there's something quite deep to unpick there if you want to go there at some point. Um, look, I've been a doctor for almost 20 years now, and one of the issues that I think comes up all the time with patients is their weight. You know, doctor, I want to help. I want to help losing weight. You know, I don't feel good about myself. Um, you know, I tried this plan. It was working in January, but now I'm heavier than I was before and I feel crap about myself. You know, some version of that story I've been hearing over and over again. But here's what I discovered, Emma, is that... In 20 years, I've seen that you can always help somebody lose excess weight if they wish to, in a way that improves their health, in a way that's done responsibly, scientifically, but also in a sustainable way once you help them find the right approach for them. And that's the key. How do you help someone find the right approach for them? Because the right approach for one person 
it's the wrong approach for someone else. And I see a whole population being misserved every January where they're trying to pick up the latest celebrity diet book. And they're, again, I'm not saying that, I'm not having a go at anyone who's releasing books like that, right? I'm just saying that many people, they're really committed. They want to improve their health. They feel that losing excess weight is gonna help them. And they pick up a book, they follow the plan, they drop a dress size in January, they're feeling good about themselves, but by March, they're heavier than they were before. But not only that, they've damaged how they feel about themselves. So they're actually worse off physically, mentally, and emotionally than had they never done the plan in the first place. And I thought, okay, Morgan, you've got three Sunday Times bestsellers out there. They're helping loads of people, right? You are, by society's definition of success, which is not my definition of success, but by society's definition of success, you've got the ticks, right? But my mission, Emma, which I may have told you on a previous show, is... I want to help 100 million people over the course of my career. I want to help 100 million people regain their health, understand that they can be the architects of their health. And the way I want to do that is by simplifying health messaging and really connecting with people's hearts to inspire them, to motivate them, and to give them a system on how they can do that. Now, if I'm going to help 100 million people, I've got to be able to reach a different audience. I can't keep feeding the same audience. Now, that doesn't mean my existing readers and followers won't enjoy this book. I think it's my best book yet, personally. Um, I think it's a book for everyone, even though it says lose weight on the title. Actually, the truth is it will help all of us understand ourselves better, have make better choices about ourselves, improve our self-esteem, improve our confidence, improve our understanding of who we actually are. But here's what I realized. I realized that there's a population, there's a lot of people out there who have been conditioned by society to only pick up a health book if it promises weight loss. Mm. Only pick it up. So I had this interesting quandary where I thought, I'm always about health first, weight loss second, promote health and well-being, be compassionate, be kind, don't fat shame. Like these things have always come naturally to me. That's how I've always felt we should approach this. But I thought you can keep banging on about this. You can keep writing books about this stuff, but you're not going to hit that audience because that audience are only picking up the weight loss book. So I had to think, well, Rongan, if you truly want to reach your goal, you've got to be able to impact them. And so it has been done intentionally because I think obesity and carrying excess weight it's almost become, you almost can't talk about this anymore, right? It's, it's become such a divisive topic. And I think we're conflating two different issues when we make it a divisive topic. And if you want to go down that rabbit hole, we can do. Let's do that. It's, well, a lot of you say we shouldn't be shaming fat people. Agree. Um, we should accept people who they are. Agree. Um, but some people go one step further and say, we shouldn't be encouraging people to lose weight. They are just the way they are. They don't need to do anything differently. They don't need to change anything. And I probably have a slightly different perspective. And maybe that comes from 20 years in medicine. But I feel that it's pretty clear from the evidence that 
carrying excess weight, and that can be a difficult definition. What does that really mean? Carrying excess weight can absolutely have health consequences. Um, that's different from fat shaming. Like I've never fat shamed a single patient in my entire life to my knowledge. I certainly haven't intentionally done so, but I've helped thousands of them lose weight in a responsible and sustainable way. And I can tell you no one who has managed to lose weight in a way that works for them and helps them build up their self-esteem at the same time. No one's come back to me and said, doctor, you know what? I wish we hadn't done that. I wish I was heavier. I wish I hadn't lost that weight. I, I've, maybe no one's ever told me that, but I listen pretty carefully to what my patients tell me. I've never heard that. So I, I felt this responsibility. So are you going to hide from this? Or if you really want to help people, you've got to go into it. You've got to get in that arena and you've got to get involved because I think I've got a message that needs to be heard. I genuinely believe that, man. I welcome your thoughts on this. I'm very proud of this book. I have never seen a book on weight loss out there like the book I've just written. There may be, maybe I haven't seen it, but I think I put together something that's really useful and practical for people, but, but it's got compassion at its heart. And I want to serve that audience this year. I want, look, I want my existing audience to get the books. I think they'll love it. But I want to hit that new audience who've never come across my approach. You've never come across the way I look at health. Not just me, many people do. It's not like my way. Uh, and that's the other thing in this book, Emma. There's no, you're not following the Dr. Chatterjee plan. Um, you know, my favorite bit, well, I've got a few favorites. <laughs> you know me, I've got lots of favorites. But there's this, I remember the day before it went to print, I had a brainwave and I, I phoned Penguin or I emailed, I said, listen, guys, guys, no, 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 no. I've got to add this bit. I've got wrong and past the deadline. It's all set up. It's going off the print. I said, I'm really sorry. We're not putting the book out unless I put this bit in. It has to go in the book. I just put my foot down because it's, and maybe other people won't see it in the same way, but I don't know what you think, Emma, but in the page just before the conclusion, I added this. And when your friends ask you which plan you're following, you can tell them that you no longer follow other people's plans because you've been empowered to design your own. Oh, yeah. And in a nutshell, I thought, that's it. That's what the book's about. I'm helping you understand yourself. I'm helping you understand your behaviors. I'm helping you understand, is it what you eat that's the problem? Or is it why you eat or how you eat or when you eat or where you eat, maybe you're looking at the wrong place. Maybe you don't need a new diet book. Maybe your dietary choices are good enough. Maybe the fact that you're having crisps and biscuits and sweets on the sofa in the evening isn't a sign of a hungry stomach. Maybe it's a sign of a hungry heart. And let me help you fill that hole. But let's, if you want to, because I ain't forcing anyone to do anything they don't want to. If you want my help, let me help you make some different choices. And, and absolutely correctly, that's exactly what it does. And I think you've talked about compassion and that is something that really comes through in everything that you put out. But trust me, as a woman who has read a lot of diet books, who has been in the health journalism field for 20 years and has done every cleanse, has been, you know, the guinea pig for certain trials and goodness knows what diet technique and this, that, and the other. I've tried it all and been disappointed by everything. 
and there's never been any compassion. And like you say, it just builds up every failed diet, every failed workout regimen is just another, a notch on the failed, I was going to say bedpost, but literally just like, it's like you wear a scarlet letter that says that you've failed once more with your health, your fitness, your weight or what have you. And what really comes across in this, right at the very beginning, you say it's not your fault, don't beat yourself up. You actually take that blame within the first few pages off the person reading it, which is really nice. It might even be the first paragraph from Recollection. I think it was so important to me to make that point right at the start and to, to really go right in and say, this is not your fault. You are not a failure. You are not worthless. You know, you are not worthy of shame, right? It, you know, the, the, the diet industry, and it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's, um, it's the only industry that I know of where when we fail, or, or sorry, when it fails, we blame ourselves. Yeah. Right? We never think, oh, it's the wrong diet for me, or that's the wrong approach. We're like, no, I'm a failure. Mm. Man, I can't stick to this. There's something wrong with me. My body can can maintain healthy weight effortlessly. There's something wrong with me. And I want us to go right in and start and say, it's not you, right? It's not you that's changed. It's the world around you. What I mean by that is this only became a problem, right? This only became an issue in the 1980s. If you look at the graphs, that's when being overweight, being obese started to go up dramatically. Now, we didn't suddenly become lazy, gluttonous um, individuals, you know, in, in the 1980s. We didn't suddenly in the first generation of human history just don't care about our health. No, it wasn't us that changed. It was the world around us. If you take your hunter-gatherer ancestors and bring them into the 21st century, 65% of them will probably end up being overweight or obese. It will absolutely mirror where we are in this country. It's, it's the environment around us that is driving us. It's whether it's the, the easy and cheap access to uh, energy-dense, calorie-rich, nutrient-poor foods. Everywhere you go, you want to fill up petrol, it's there. You want to go and buy a newspaper, it's there. You want to buy a magazine, it's there. You, you have it everywhere you go, you're having to fight the stuff that your brain is hardwired to want. You know, you're not a failure if you can't do that. I have, hey, listen, I have struggled with my sugar intake during the lockdowns this year. I know that eating a ton of sugar isn't good for me. I've written three health books, right? I'm the wellness doctor, right? I get it. I know. Doesn't mean I can stop it, right? It's not the rational brain that's involved here. There's some deep emotional craving. Now, I was going through, you know, the, the pressure of everything. I've generally felt pretty good this year, to be fair. But I was doing some therapy, some inner work, and I was processing some stuff from me as a child. And I remember that we always had in our house this, um, this big tin of, like, crunchy bars and Milky Way, you know, the little fun-sized ones. And yes. I remember, like, some Saturday afternoons, me and my brother just sort of you know, me threatening to tell my, tell my, tell my mum about my brother, hey, you have another crunchy, I'm telling mum that you've been in the bar. <laughs> you know, like all kinds of like behaviours that have started to come up for me. I think as I was processing them, I was consuming a lot of sugar. Now I've sort of moved beyond that now and I'm, I feel like I'm, I feel lighter and stronger for having been through that. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that, you know, 
it's not our fault. The way we help people lose excess weight if they want to is by leading with compassion. It's to help build up self-esteem, confidence, and understanding of yourself. And the weight loss will come as a, as a side effect of those other things. So the book title is Feel Great, Lose Weight. It is not lose weight, feel great, right? It's I'm going to help you feel good about yourself right now. I'm going to help your mental health. I'm going to help you build some beautiful daily habits that are going to make you feel good. And the consequence of that is going to be you're going to lose weight. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot there, but, but that's kind of my sort of rough overview. There's, there is a lot there and it is a very thorough book. But one of the things that I found really interesting and I wanted to unpick a little bit because I can imagine that a lot of people listening might have been in this experience or have insight into this is you are a doctor. And so people have come to you as a patient and maybe said, oh, doctor, I, I, I'm gaining weight. I don't really know what's happening. I've done it a few years ago. I was going to my GP probably every six months and saying, I'm hammering the gym, but I'm just getting bigger. And I was met with fairly short shrift, to be honest. But I just wonder in, in that situation when you're met with somebody who basically is saying to you, I'm overweight, I'm unhappy about it, and I feel completely helpless what is other than it's not your fault what are the practical things that somebody can immediately do to begin this journey of basically i think what you outline in the book is how to connect with yourself to put your health first yeah so if you were in my consultation room and you said that to me or let's say one of the listeners i would say I hear you, I understand that. Now, tell me about what's been going on in your life. Tell me about how that makes you feel. Tell me about what you've tried so far and what you think is going on. And then I shut my gob and I listen to what they're telling me. And, you know, I, I, I run these courses where we teach doctors a lot and I, the, the, one of my phrases is, connect first, educate second. I have really great compliance with my patients and I think that's because I shut my gob and I listen to what they have to tell me and I make sure they know that I care, that I've heard them. I use eye contact. I'll come in closer. I'll really, you know, and I'll be, you know, I understand that must be really hard. Um, once I feel that I've connected, then we start to do the detective work and try to unpick what may be the issue. So that's what I do in the consultation room. But for someone listening to this who's not my patient, you know, where to start? Well, the reality is weight loss is not just a case of what you eat and how much you move. It really isn't. It's way too simplistic. So you just said, Emma, that um, you've been hammering it at the gym. The weight's still not coming up. You, you go and see your doctor. Now, this is really interesting because there's obviously a phrase out there called calories in versus calories out. So the amount of calories you consume into your body via food, if the amount of calories you burn off is greater than what you consume, you will lose weight. Now, technically, that is correct, technically. But in practical terms, certainly for most of my patients, it's never been that helpful. Now, this is such a divisive issue. Like I made a video 
on calories two weeks ago. I thought I'd caveated most things, but wow, you put it out, you're like, oh man, I didn't caveat that one. And I've hit a nerve with people because of course it can help some people. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you take exercise for a minute, we think the exercise we do, let's say you run somewhere and the counter says 300 calories, we feel that that's an additive number. So we feel we can just add 300 calories on to whatever our expenditure is. We just add 300 calories on and we burn off 300 more calories. Incorrect. It's not additive. Right? It can be sometimes, but often your body will compensate. So it will reduce how much calories it's burnt off in other areas to allow that 300 calories, right? It's, um, there's some really good research from, from a couple of years back, this guy called Herman Ponzo, and I talk about this in the book. I think it's so interesting. He's looked at hunter-gatherer tribes in Tanzania who are active. They move around. They don't have our Western sedentary lifestyles. How much do they burn off a day? 2,100 calories a day on average. How much does the average Westerner who sat down um, a, a day burn off? Roughly the same, about 2,000 calories. They're more active than us, yet they, they're burning off the same stuff. It's like, well, hold on a minute, what's going on there? How many people are beasting themselves in the gym, punishing themselves, and then thinking, why on earth is my weight not falling off? Well, maybe that ain't the right solution for you, right? And this goes back to what I said at the start. It's about finding the right solution for you. So someone who's listening to this, um, Okay, maybe, maybe it's worth trying this exercise, right? Let's see if this works. Because I always find this difficult because I know how I do it one-on-one -on -one with a patient. But trying to give that general advice to people is always something I have a challenge doing, particularly when writing books. But I, I do feel I allow broad principles to come out in the book, but then I help people personalize it for them. So I'm going to make a bet, Emma, that most people who are trying to lose excess weight because they believe it's going to help them with their health know that eating, you know, a tub of Haagen-Dazs in the evening or cracking open the quality street and nailing the whole um, box is unlikely to be helping them, right? I bet most people who are doing that know that, right? So do they really need a new diet book? Is that the problem or is it actually why they're eating it, right? So I've got this exercise in the book, um, and I know it's on page 93 because I reference it 10 times in the entire book. So I hope I'm right here. Open up 93. I'm going to should... tell you whether you're right, Rongan. It should be called the freedom exercise. The three Fs. The three Fs. Right. So I think this is the most powerful exercise in the book for everyone, whether you want to lose weight or not. And I, I don't want people to have to buy the book to get it. I want to talk to you about it because I think it's going to help people, right? So the three Fs are um, feel, feed, and find. Right, so next time you have a craving, let's say, no, I get these cravings in the evening sometimes, you know, I fancy some sugar, right? Next time you have a craving, just take a pause and ask yourself the first step, feel, what am I feeling? You can write it down or you can just think about it. Am I really hungry or am I a bit bored? Have I just had a row with my partner? Have I had a day of Zoom meetings that I've not been outside? I just feel a bit yucky and this is just my little treat to myself. Has the kid's bedtime gone on a bit too long and you're a bit flustered and frustrated? And so this is your way of dealing with the stress. You don't have to do anything. You still want the, the chocolate biscuits afterwards, that's completely fine. But just start off that awareness. Oh, I wasn't hungry, I'm just stressed. Okay, great. 
The second F is feed. How does the food that you've chosen, how does the snack you've chosen feed that feeling? Oh, I just had a row with my boyfriend. I don't feel good about myself. Eating the chocolate actually makes me feel better. Okay, cool. Don't beat yourself up, just be aware. Oh, I'm using food to feed that feeling of loneliness or stress. Okay, then the third F is, now that you understand what the feeling is and how the snack feeds that feeling, the third F is find. Can you find an alternative behavior that's going to feed that feeling? So instead of you know, diving in to the quality streets, it could be, oh, I'm gonna run myself a bath. Maybe I need to give my boyfriend a cuddle or my pet. Maybe I'm gonna pull up YouTube and do a five minute yoga sequence. Maybe I'm gonna go to another room where I'm not used to snacking. So I just sort of break that cycle. You know, and there's a million tips in the book, whatever it is, because then you take the pressure off yourself. Then you understand, then you don't feel, oh, I'm a failure. Why can't I follow that diet? The diet wasn't the problem, right? The, the problem was that you, your cravings were making you have high calorie, sugar, energy dense foods that were probably not helping you, right? I'm one of those so-called lucky people that I could probably eat what I want and not put on weight, right? I probably could but I feel it in other ways. Mm. I get moody. I don't sleep so well. I'm a bit, you know, short fused. I'm not the person I want to be when I eat in that way. And so you can apply this exercise, Emma, frankly, to anything. You can apply it to social media. Like if you're spending two or three hours on Instagram in the evening and you want to reduce that, instead of trying to willpower it, it's like, well, what need is that serving for you? Are you lonely? Are you a bit isolated? When was the last time you had a chat with one of your best mates? Well, maybe that lack of connection, you're filling that, you, know, you have that hole in your heart, you're filling that hole with Haagen-Dazs and Quality Streets, right? Again, it's, it's, it's about compassion, but you can never change long-term without understanding yourself. And you can use that for alcohol. If someone's listening to this, they're trying to cut down how much alcohol they're drinking, I, I bet you that 3F exercise will help you understand. It may take a little while to change it. You may not be able to change it straight away, but I can tell you this, if you're not aware, there's no hope you're going to change that behavior in the long term. Well, this actually fast tracks us into something that I felt about food personally. And actually it was, actually, it was interrogating it in this way that helped me uh, deal with my own issues and then subsequently lose the excess weight I was carrying and that was to actually see my relationship with food as an addiction so I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that in terms of are we addicted to food but equally how hard it is to actually then navigate your way through that when food is essential for life yeah it's a great question and I, I do talk about this in the book and what I first of all start off by saying is the concept of food addiction is highly controversial amongst experts, right? There's all kinds of fighting about, you know, how can it be addictive when it's say something that we need for survival? We don't need drugs for survival. So how can we compare? Now, my approach to these things is I, I'm, I'm what I call a real world doctor, right? Scientific studies, research interests me, but what interests me more is real life results. You know, does what I read help this patient in front of me? If it doesn't, I need to find a, a better solution because that's all that matters to me. 
So I think the fighting about it, or the, you know, how can I put it? The debate around it is, I think it's unhelpful. I think what we can say is that certain foods have addictive-like qualities. So I'm like, let the experts fight over whether it's addictive or not. But I know, as you're describing, there are addictive-like qualities to certain foods. You know, I, I call these foods blissy foods in the book um, as a way of really trying to evoke an emotion and people to understand these, these blissy foods and what they do. But we all hear about dopamine hits when we go on social media. We get a little hit of dopamine. Well, certain foods can give us a dopamine hit as well. And dopamine is, is, is called many things, but one of the things it's called is the learning molecule. So it helps to educate us on certain behaviors. So certain foods really give us such a feeling. And if, particularly if there's an emotion with that where we feel bored or we feel depressed and we, or we feel really hungry and we have that food and you get a big dopamine spike, that conditions you to go, oh, next time I feel like that, I'm going to crave another food like that, which is why some people literally cannot resist the smell of fast food mm. or the sight of it. It literally is spiking dopamine. It's not your failure. Like this, there's a case study I use in the book of one, one of my, uh, well, I don't know if it's this one that I use or I have so many Are like Are you talking this. about the woman who has to drive the longer way home to avoid the roundabout exactly. with all the drive throughs Yeah. Exactly that one, which is someone who's trying their very best. They're, they have the day at work, they're knackered, they might leave a bit late and they're driving home. And I think it was a KFC from recollection um, <laughs> that they're at a roundabout, they could just waft, they can smell, smell it. I said, Doc, you know, I'm trying so hard, but some days I just can't, I can't resist. I just pull in and I get it and I eat it. And I explained to her about dopamine and about learned behavior. And I said, look, literally your hormones are changing. You know, we know that once, once your dopamine gets conditioned a certain way, even the sight of food, like a food advert, can start off the process, even the smell of food. So it's not that you're being weak. Your hormones are changing in response to that. So for her, the right approach, well, the one that worked for her was, I said, well, would you consider driving a different way home? She's like, well, I never really thought about that before. Uh, yeah, it took me about 10 minutes longer, but I can do that. It's like, okay, well, why don't you try that? That one change changed everything because she didn't have to fight willpower. She was no longer being triggered and having her, her dopamine uh, spike. She gets home, she cooks a nice, healthy, whole food meal every night. And over the next few weeks and months, completely transformed her health, how she felt about herself, her sleep, but also she lost most of the weight that she wanted to, to lose. You know, this is only two months in, right? It's, and this goes back to the point I'm trying to make, which is it's not your fault, right? There might be little things going on that you don't realize are sabotaging your best efforts. And what I want to do is shine a light for people and go, hey, look, is this relevant in your life? Okay, if that isn't, what about this? Is this relevant in your life? Could this be something that you've got a blind spot to and you think, all you need is the latest diet book and the latest workout plan. Maybe that ain't the problem. Do you know what I mean, Emma? So I think it's so, it's complex, but at the same time, it's simple. Because that, once you, do you know what I mean? Once you identify, it's like, oh, I get it now. For her, it was so simple, but it wasn't simple until she understood it. 
until then, she was a failure. Doc, I can't do it. I just can't resist. I don't know what to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's such a small tweak, just changing the way that you drive drive home and not being subjected to those prompts that make you order the, I think you said chicken tenders when you were talking about that case study. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's kind of, you know, there are other strategies you could employ because it may be a train station you're going to that is giving you the same problem, right? But it's not as easy to circumnavigate that because you're not in your car, you can't take a different route. So there's other strategies. You could have an emergency snack pack with you. You could go, oh, you could be prepared and go, I know. Like I shared my own uh, experience of Euston Station, I think, at the start of one of the <laughs> at the end. Which I was like, well, should I share this? I don't know, I'm going to share this. Um, but we all are faced with those temptations. And maybe you need an alternative strategy. Or maybe you just need to be awareness to know I'm not a failure I'm just human right yeah absolutely and I think as well we talked about it a little while ago and I think it's worth revisiting is this idea of when you're unhappy with your health when you're unhappy with your weight and when your weight is unhealthy they're two different things and we can bind our physical appearance so tightly up in emotional tangles and that's where body dysmorphia comes in and what have you. But the BMI scale is pretty largely seen as not perhaps the most useful thing. It's more of a guide. But where do you where do you stand on or what advice would you give to someone listening to understand when their weight is unhealthy or perhaps might be working against them versus when actually it's not a problem so much? It's really tricky because I don't think there's a perfect metric here. Um, I think BMI, you know, it's been criticised so much. I understand why. Um, you know, it's, 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 it can be pretty useful when you look across populations to see certain trends. But I think on individual levels, it can, it can be misleading a lot. It can be accurate some of the time as well, to be fair, but mm. it, you know, it's like any testing or, or anything that we do, there's, there's pros and cons. Um, you can do what are called waist to hip ratios and it's not that easy to explain. So people just Google waist to hip ratio. You can, you can see how very quickly you can measure your waist and your hip where those landmarks are and you can divide them and see where you fall on that scale. That can be really useful. That's definitely better than BMI. But I don't want to sort of try and do that in a half-hearted way where I then confuse someone. So I would encourage people to look that up because you, you can easily find it on the first Google page when you're searching um, in terms of how you can actually technically do that, where the, where the anatomical waist is, mm. where the anatomical hip is. Is but there also height to waist? Is that also one? Height to waist, yeah. I mean, waist to hip is typically the one that we would use the most. It can, it can really stratify your risk as well of problems associated or downstream problems that you may get as a consequence mm. um so it you know I, I sort of feel that i feel that the approach should always be on health and how you're feeling mm. right so one of the things I say in the book is I feel most people would benefit from 
throwing away their scales. Right. And I'll tell you why. Now, I, I also recognize that it's not always the case for everyone. I'll tell you why I say that. And I say, look, if you must look at your scales, which I recognize some people have to, I say try and do it once a fortnight or once a month if you can. And I'll tell you why. Now, I appreciate that's not the same for everyone. But I've seen the scale, the number on the scales be, it can be so toxic sometimes. And what I mean by that is, like I'm always about process over outcome, journey over destination, right? Have the goal, right? Let's say the goal is in 2021, right? 2020 scared me. I didn't like what I was seeing, right? I want to get on top of my health. You know, I would ideally like to lose some weight. I would like to have more energy, whatever it is. Okay, have the goal and then park it. Because the way you get to most goals is by not focusing on the goals because you really want to focus on the daily steps that you have to take because that's what you've got control over. You can't actually control whether you reach that goal. You can control the daily steps that you need to take in order to get there. There's a couple of problem, problems I feel with goals, like all when we overly focus on goals. What happens when you reach that goal? Let's say you want to lose a stone. And let's say by the end of February, you've lost a stone. Oh, man, I got there. Cool. <laughs> I reached the goal. Okay, cool. I can get back on with life now. I've seen that happen all the time. But when you get, when you fall in love with the process, it's like whether you reach that goal in Feb, March or April, it doesn't matter because you're, you're building in these habits and these practices and these routines are going to help you far beyond that goal. The other problem with scales is this. And, and again, I'm giving you this from 20 years of experience of seeing tens of thousands of patients. Doesn't mean there aren't exceptions to the rule. No, of course not. But I have seen a lot of people and a lot of people from different backgrounds and who've tried all kinds of different things. We know from some research that the number on a scales can vary by up to 10 pounds in any given day. So what happens if you're making great progress, but you're just on one of those days where it's showing up, you know, and that can, there's all kinds of reasons why that is. But what if you're doing great? but you don't get the number on the scale that you want. I have seen it sabotage people before and go, screw it, it's not working. This plan ain't working, right? So I say, listen, what I want you to focus on whilst you're trying to follow the principles in the book is on how you feel, right? There's a daily reflection exercise people could do. There's a weekly reflection one. You know, I think the daily one is every evening for two or three minutes, just ask yourself a couple of questions. You know, what went well today? And what might I do differently tomorrow? It might be, right? It might be, today, you know, I had a really busy day. I didn't get a proper lunch break. I didn't get to work out. But you know what? Instead of ordering takeaway, I still, for 20, 30 minutes, I just got in the kitchen and I made a freshly home-cooked meal for myself, my partner, and my children. God, I'm really proud of myself. That's one, one thing it could be. The second thing could be, you know what, last night I was super stressed. I stayed up late watching Netflix. I'm knackered today. I was craving sugar all day. I couldn't resist the biscuits. I know, I can see now when I don't sleep well, I don't eat well the next day. Tonight, if I get that feeling, instead of putting on Netflix, I'm just gonna go into bed, read a book and try to go to bed earlier, right? Simple things, but I tell you, Emma, like these are so powerful because you're just starting to tune in to who you are. And if people focus on how they feel like, hey, you know what? I've been following this for like two weeks. Man, I've got more energy. I 
I've got more spark when I wake up. Like my relationships are better because I'm not as reactive. That's going to keep people going. Uh, that is that is seductive. Like when we get that, it's like that is like I want more of that. And you'll find that when you focus on how you feel and how these changes are improving your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, I find most of the time the numbers take care of themselves most of the time, you know? So I get the temptation to want to track, you know, oh, you know, you know, tracking on a daily basis, I, I really don't think is a good idea, checking the bathroom scales every day. I really think you can get yourself into all kinds of emotional tangles by doing that. Once a week, once a fortnight, really, or once a month, I think it's much better. I don't know, do, would, you, would you have a different view to that? I have a complicated view. I don't want to make this podcast about me because it's very much about you and about your insights. But obviously listeners will know that in the last year, I, and I've talked very openly about it. And one of my motivating factors in losing weight, and I've kept the weight off now for 10 months, which is something I've never achieved before, is I have, um, my, my motivating factor for the first time wasn't, I want to be skinny, or I want to fit into that outfit or I, anything like that. It was, I don't want to do this when I'm 50. I don't want to be doing this when I'm 50. This cycle of constantly my weight going up and my weight going down. And actually the thing that I hadn't done for about four years was get on the scales because I was in denial. And by embracing one of the um, principles of the body positivity movement, for example, which is chuck the scales away, I, I embraced that, but for the wrong reasons. I was like, I don't weigh myself, I go buy my clothes. But what I was missing was that my weight was constantly going up or I was heavier than I wanted to be. And I had Gillian Michaels on the podcast recently and we talked at length about scales and she says, you just have to view them as a compass. They just tell you where they are and they point you in the direction of where you want to go. But it, as you say, it's easier said than done because of the emotional tangles. During my weight loss, I have gone from weighing myself every day to weighing myself once a week. Mm -hmm. And that's now what I find useful. But right at the beginning, I found daily weighing kept my mind in the game. Yeah, and you know what? I really appreciate you sharing that. And that makes a lot of sense. What, what I hear, Emma, throughout your story there is somebody who is learning about themselves more and figuring out what's working for them. And you're right, we can do, and this is why I'm not a massive fan of other people's plans, including any plan that I might do. Like I'm a fan of people figuring stuff out for themselves with a with a helping hand if needed. But it's what you said was it was so profound for me that I threw away my scales for the wrong reasons. And I think that's the key with all these things. Why are you doing it? If looking at scales once a week or every day helps you stay motivated and particularly for the first few weeks when you're trying to really make some changes. Okay, I actually do understand that. I'm coming from a place where I've seen, I'm skewed by my experience, like everyone is. We're all skewed by our personal experience. I'm skewed by what my patients have told me. I've just seen too many times mm. when the scales are going in the right direction, life is great. But one bad day on the scales, even though the last 12 were great, it's like, oh man, it's not working. 
Uh, well, I also take daily progress photos, which might also be a problem. And what happens if I do go up in weight, I can just look at a picture, track it back to a date and go, well, actually, you don't look any different. So it must be hormonal or if I feel like I need to talk myself off a ledge. But as I've gone through this, I don't have the same panics as I used to, as I'm sure you used to have with patients where they would come to you in a state of panic about the number on the scale. I feel like I've been able to navigate that a lot better. I mean, if you don't mind me asking them, so what, it sounds what you've done is incredible. It sounds like you've really put your mind behind this and really, um, really worked on this. And you've, I think you said you've managed to keep it off, which is, you know, well done. And it's, it's really interesting to hear, even to hear that, you know, I've managed to keep it off. Like it's almost, there's something in that which is kind of because I haven't in the past. And so as of yet, I've managed to keep it off. Um, and I think language and how we talk about these things, and there's a whole section in the book on language and our self-talk and fixing our self-talk is a critical part of the puzzle. I feel we have to be so mindful of how we talk to ourselves. Like even, even saying I am fat or I am overweight, for some people, that can be problematic because I am, right, so, so obesity is classified as a disease, right? All medical organizations classify it as a disease. Now, we don't say I am about pretty much any other disease. We don't say I am ulcerative colitis, I am cancer, you know, we, you know we, we don't say those things, but we do say it about weight. And the risk is for some people is that you wrap up, not everyone does this, but you, some people I've really seen this, you wrap up your whole identity is wrapped up around the number on that scale. Whereas simple things like, you know, I'm currently carrying excess weight. Okay, that is just removing it from you. You're just finding a bit of distance. And I've used these with patients and they are, so damn powerful but people think oh, come on just give me the diet give me the workout regime that i need to do but it's that if you if you are unkind to the way you talk about yourself like and this isn't quite being unkind so, you know this is just common parlance and how we talk it's not denial right for some people it's not a problem but for other people it's almost like you, your whole identity is wrapped up in your weight so how can you lose weight because if you lose weight you actually lose a part of yourself right? So for some people, self-talk is really, really interesting, really, really key. But, but you know, what, what benefits, apart from losing weight, can I, again, I, I feel bad, it's not my podcast, it's yours, so I don't, I'm just, I just want, I'm so inquisitive, I just want to know, it's like, how has that made you feel? You know, what's, what's happened? What, have you felt any other benefits, or what have the benefits been for you? Um, it's like, it's been game-changing, because I, my identity was wrapped up in being overweight and it would be something I would talk to people about and I would tell them I was overweight before they mentioned it. I think if you've ever been bullied as, a, as someone who's been overweight, if anyone's ever called you fat, which happened at school to me, you, want, you almost want to let people, yeah, I know, I see it, ha, 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 I'm, I'm all right with it, but you're not. And speaking about negative self-talk, I was thinking then, God, I think I used to get dressed up go out to events when I worked on magazines, like go to events like the BAFTAs and I'd look in the mirroring and in my head say to myself, oh, ugly fat bitch. That was how I'd speak to myself. 
internally. But so I reached that point where I just thought, I can't keep doing this. This is self-harm, what I'm doing. Not just what I'm, for me, it was what I was doing with food, but also how I was treating myself because of what I was doing with food. It was many layers of self-harm. And by taking ownership of it and admitting what I was doing with food, which was my big thing, for me, I really enjoyed the science of it. It's just like, I know we've talked about calories in, calories out, but I just thought, well, trust the science. Calories in versus calories out, that's what it is. Clearly you're consuming too many calories. Interrogate that and figure it out and figure out why you keep eating these things. And in many ways, I know the question is, how is it making me feel? The confidence I have because I am no longer hiding something shameful. The... Uh, how empowered I feel because now when I work out which I've always loved doing but never really saw any results from I see and feel the difference in my muscles and my body shape because I'm not sabotaging it with excess calories and the feeling of actually I know I said I've kept the weight off I don't feel like it's going to go back on that in itself is also the release and the freedom I have from that So this is a very emotional outburst, but the freedom and release I feel from that is like nothing else I've ever experienced. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. And it's just so so fascinating hearing that and hearing all those layers and, you know, what you say is self-harm. I think the way we talk to ourselves is self-harm for a lot of us. I bet there's this little um, exercise in the book. I talk about saying three kind things to yourself each day. And I say, if you're turning away right now, if you find that hard or you find that a bit embarrassing, that's a pretty good sign that you need extra work on this exercise. Because the truth is, if we can't love ourselves, it's very hard to truly love anybody else And it's really hard to be loved. Like we have to be able to love ourselves. I know it's almost like a 21st century cliche, you've got to love yourself. You know what? I think it's one of the most important things. Like I actually think for many people, Emma, losing weight, losing excess weight in a sustainable way, it's not that it's not about calories, right? At its core scientific level, it is. But for many people, it's a self-esteem issue. It's actually an issue of how they feel about themselves, not wanting to self-sabotage, not wanting to punish themselves with some biscuits or chocolate, right? There's, there's, and I appreciate every case is different, but, but there are so many complex emotions. There's another session, right, which I think is so powerful. And I, I'm really proud that I put this in like a mainstream book on weight loss. It's about how our emotional baggage and our childhood experiences can impact our weight. So this section is entitled Obesity as a Symptom. Mm. Great study by Vincent Folletti, the ACEs trial, where they've shown a really strong correlation between people who've undergone adverse experiences as kids. That could be physical abuse, emotional abuse, could be all kinds of things, and being overweight or obese later on in life. And I share this case study in the book of this patient I had who only started putting on extra weight when, after she was at, I think around 17, 18, never, never before that. And 
I was spending time with her, I was trying to unpick this story. And then it turned out that she had been in an abusive relationship when she was about 15. And I felt there was really something in this. We got her some help. Uh, she had some psychotherapy. And what transpired for her is that she never wanted to be in an abusive relationship again. So her strategy, her subconscious strategy, not consciously, her subconscious strategy was, I'm going to make myself fat. I'm going to put on weight so that no man is going to find me attractive and want to date me. Therefore, I won't be in an abusive relationship again. And when we started to unpack that, when she did some therapy around that, processing it, the weight started to come off, mm. right? The obesity was a symptom of other things that were going on. And it's different for every person, right? There are some, there are some patterns. And that's why I put so many case studies in this book as I do in all my books, because I, I want to, you know, we learn through stories, we connect through stories. So it's kind of like, I want someone to... We don't go, oh man, that, she sounds a bit like me. Could that be my, could that be my blind spot? Oh, it's easier to see when it's someone else. We're very, we're very good at seeing things in other people, myself included. I'm not so good at seeing it in myself, right? So I know this has gone pretty deep, but I think, I think the weight loss narrative of eat less and move more, I actually think is a little bit too simplistic. And I think we're not, getting anywhere really with this across society i think there's multiple reasons for that but i think we're not addressing the why question mm -hmm. just telling people what you need to do and shaming them and guilting them and saying you gotta you know you care for the nhs you want to save the nhs sort yourself out and start eating better and looking after yourself right it, it displays a complete lack of I think of understanding of some of the real issues that are going on. And you can tell as you tell your story, you know, and we can talk about calories all we want, but there's, and, and, and again, I've said scientifically, technically, there is, there is validity to that. But there's clearly a whole complex issue of emotions that is going on there that you've had to deal with and you've had to probably fight demons there I'm going to guess you know um and I, I love the fact that you said you know do you think your increased confidence and increased self-esteem that you mentioned do you think that's come because you've lost weight or do you think you managed to get that and that's why you lost some of the weight that's such a good question and it's something that I'm I, I get a lot at the moment it's like oh you've lost weight and now you look confident and it's like I think the confidence comes from the fact of understanding the calories in versus calories out that's part of it but the other layer was understanding that I could say no to the impulse of eating and it gave me a sense of control which I think gave me confidence and then I lost weight but the confidence came first because I was now I, I wasn't disconnected from myself in, in a way that I had been before and I guess I didn't like myself very much because of the choices I made and so that was healing as well so it's not just a case of I wear a smaller dress size and so I feel confident, which I think, as you say, is far too simplistic. There's a lot more that goes on, but I think being empowered and understanding the choices I was making and having agency in those choices and choosing better ones, like you say in the book, you know, choose uh, whole foods, foods that aren't highly processed. I was thinking about all of those things as well. And that's what kind of led to me feeling more confident, I think. Why, why do you think, 
it's not going to come back. What what's changed in you this time compared to the many previous times? What, what's different? Well, I've always said that every diet works while you follow it. But if the if the behavior that you go back to is one where let's use me as an example. So every diet that I did and stuck to worked, but the, be- the behavior that I always went back to was one where I ate enough and yeah, yeah, that's put it that way, where I ate enough whereby I would then carry about two to three stone of excess weight. So that's what needed to be fixed, not the diet. It was like, you can live a certain way for a short period of time. And of course you're going to see results, but if the behavior you go back to is one way you always end up being overweight or heavier than you would like, then that's the problem that needs to be addressed. And so for me, it's the fact that the changes that I made and the fact that I didn't go on a diet, I decided to look at why I was eating. The fact that I interrogated that and was able to make changes there mean that my behavior fundamentally has changed. So even if now I, I'm having a crappy day and I go and I eat a couple of bags of crisps. I don't worry about it because I know I'm not going to do it tomorrow. Yeah. So powerful to hear that. And it's, yeah, it brings shivers to me hearing that. It's so powerful hearing that Emma, because, you know, the truth is you're experiencing it. You are someone who's been through it. When it comes to that, I haven't, you know, I'm writing this book from a, you know, I, I think I do empathize a lot. I really try and empathize with my patients. I really listen. I've absorbed all that. But, and I think I've got useful things to share because of that. But I find it incredibly powerful because what you're telling me is something I have heard many, many times before from my patients. And it's, it's just, it's, it's such a complex dynamic, which comes first. And, you know, there's, it's interesting what you said about one of the, the um, it's about the reasons you're doing things. It's like the scales. What, what, why is the scale there? Is the scale there in your life? Because subconsciously you're just waiting for that day when the number's going up so you can go, yeah, I knew, I knew I couldn't stick to this. I knew it. It just proved it. It's just, you're just waiting for the proof so you can fall off. Might be for some people. Um, I, I know for some people it is that because they've told me that it's almost reinforces that belief that they can't stick to anything. And, that's why daily habits and how you create them is a big part of what I talk about. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's also that, that like we've talked about a little bit about what you eat, a little bit about why you eat, right? So we don't, you know, sleep for some people, right? For some people, the best way that they can attack this and they can start addressing the issue of improving their health and, and losing excess weight is by improving their sleep quality. We know when you haven't slept well, on average, you eat 22% more calories the next day. 22% to over five days, that's almost a week's worth. That's, a whole, that's almost a day's extra calorie content over five days if you're not sleeping well. I mean, that's incredible. Is there a new diet plan you need? Or it's like, oh, maybe this year, I sort my sleep out. I need to really get in gear about how much caffeine I'm having. I need to really think about how much I'm looking at my screen before bed, how I'm winding down in the evening. I, I, and there are case studies in the book where people who've done that, they end up losing weight effortlessly because their problem wasn't diet or even emotional. Their problem is they weren't sleeping properly. When you don't sleep well, your uh, 
your ghrelin, which is your hunger hormone, goes up. Leptin, which is the hormone that says, hey, I'm full. I have enough fuel on board. I don't need any more. That goes down. So you feel hungry. You never feel full. And you have changes in your brain. What are those changes in your brain? You find it harder to resist temptation, right? So not only are you hungrier when you haven't slept, not only do you not crave fruit and veg when you haven't slept, you crave... Um, well, you'll know we're craving, we're craving the cakes and the biscuits and the crisps. I do as well. Blissy foods. You're craving blissy foods. Not only are you craving them, you are less able to say no to that temptation as well. So for some people, it's asleep. For some people, it's the timing of when they eat. For some people, simply not eating from 6 a.m. to 10.30 p.m. Some people going down to a 12-hour eating window or an 11-hour eating window where they, they don't change what they eat. They just eat all their food from, I don't know, let's say 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. For some patients, what that does for them is it helps their sleep. It helps their IBS symptoms. It helps their indigestion, right? It helps all these other things. And the weight comes off as well. So I hope my book helps people be a detective in their life. I hope they feel as though I'm sort of holding their hand, walking them through, going, hey, look, hey, look, could it be this? Could it be this? Could it be that? Then I try and put it together at the end to say, look, you don't need me, right? Here's my guidance. Here's how I would formulate it. But you write it out. You write down the changes you're committing to this week in your handwriting. Not mine. Don't print off my thing. You write it because that's your promise to yourself, what you're going to do. I do this with patients all the time for all kinds of things. When I talk to them about stuff, I say, okay, are you happy you understand that? He goes, yeah, what's your understanding of it? Okay, great. Well, I've got some paper here. Why don't you write down here what you're going to do this week? And so it's kind of like getting them to write their own prescription to themselves. That is way more powerful than me giving them my prescription. Because if it's come from me and my printer and my handwriting, it's easy to follow. It's easy to ignore. You know what? I don't want to. But when you've said it to yourself, it's a little bit harder to actually ignore it then. 100% I think what the book does exactly as you say you navigate people around the scene of the crime for want of a better way of describing it rather than just looking at what's happened you say right let's take a step back let's look at all of these factors and you, there's a whole section on time restricted eating and I intermittent fast I do 16 8 not because not for weight management or weight loss simply because I sleep better and my IBS disappeared as soon as I started doing it because as you say in the book we are not designed to be burning fuel the whole time. Yeah, it's, it's the ripple effect that I always write about. It's that it's not the one thing. It's what does that one change do? What are the ripple effects in many aspects of your life? Like, it's so incredible to hear that. And, and also, I want people to understand that just because Emma, who's crushing it and is, you know, and, and sharing this story, just because she does intermittent fasting, doesn't mean you need to as well, right? It's, it's, we've got to be really careful at saying, you know, we've all got a mate who's transformed their life on a low carb diet or a mate who's gone vegan and has also transformed their, their, their health, right? So two potentially quite opposing things, not always, but working for different people. Different things work for different people. We've getting really, like Professor Tim Spector and the work he's doing in the PREDICT study showing that crystal clear. We can have the same food. You can have a huge blood sugar response to it. I can have nothing. Like same food, same label on it, different individual response. And so 
we, we need to learn to experiment a little bit. You, the, the truth is, actually, when you understand this data, you can't say this is the diet plan that's going to help people, that's going to help everyone. You can't. It doesn't exist, right? It's going to help some people, but some people are going to, be, are going to thrive on a different one. And, and also, when, when we're trying to talk about what sort of foods we're going to consume, yes, I, I go through some broad principles that I think are helpful, you know, uh, instead of fighting over which diet tribe you belong to, let's just agree on some principles of minimally processed foods as much as you can. You know, adequate protein with each meal. Protein keeps you full. But a lot of people, when they're trying to lose weight, particularly, they're not eating enough. They're not eating enough. And so by 4 p.m. or 5 p.m., they are literally famished, ready to unleash on whatever food they say. They've been, in their words, good all day. But they can't be good anymore right? Of course they're not. So, so there's all kinds of tweaks and little tricks in there to help people. But, but I think you've also got to think about who you are, right? The reason I call myself diet agnostic is because as a doctor, I don't think it's my role to take a side. I have to help the person in front of me. If a patient comes in to say, Dr. Chas, you know, I've heard about this low carb diet or the carnivore diet, and my mate's doing it, but you know what? I I am against animal cruelty. I, I just can't put animal foods in my f mouth or on my body. Well, I've got to help her or him around her ethical beliefs, right? So we can look at other people and go, oh, that's interesting that it worked for them. Maybe I'll try that for myself, but it's got to be ethically in alignment with you, culturally in alignment with you, and it's got to work with your lifestyle. Are you going to be able to sustainably do this not only in January, but in February, March, April, May, June, you know, and it's really taking the pressure off people and going, okay, just because that worked for my friend, maybe that one ain't going to work for me. You know what? I, I'd love to, but you know what? Time restricts eating. I like it. And I give people the get out in the book. I say, listen, but if this bit doesn't work for you, that's okay. You don't have to do everything right. You know, you just need to do enough in the right places and you will get the progress that you want. Yeah, it's not about becoming a gym bunny or suddenly adopting this new personality. And I think that's what I used to do to myself is like, if I want to be quote unquote thin, I have to be this type of person. But that's nonsense. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, really, but there's a, there's a bit in the book on three daily habits that I, I want people to try and introduce into their life. Lift, connect, reflect. Okay. And it's lift something each day, connects with another human being each day, even if it's on Zoom or the phone, and do a little bit of reflection, right? And I, I help people understand how they can do it. It take minutes to do. But why that's so important, Emma, is that what you're getting at is identity, right? So often our identity is tied up in whether we achieve a goal or not. Do I lose weight by the end of January? No, I am a failure. I can't do anything in life. Reach it. I'm amazing. You know, I am I'm wonderful. I can do that as long as I keep my weight loss up. Because as soon as I drop, as soon as it goes up, man, and you, I, and you it won't last, I'm a failure, right? Where daily habits are so wonderful is that you change who you are through what you do. So each day, if you lift, so I keep a dumbbell in my kitchen and 
I will at the very least lift it and do five bicep curls each day on each arm. Like hopefully I'll do a longer workout, but that's a minimum. Or when I pass it and I make a cup of tea, you know, and my wife and I, we've had numerous conversations over the years about whether there should be a dumbbell in the kitchen. <laughs> um, and I have passionately said there should be, because if it's in a cupboard, we'll never use it. And I need to trip over it because then I'm going to see it and I'm going to be triggered to pick it up. So I'm not saying it has to be, you know, health and safety hazard for people. But the point is, I lift something heavy each day. It doesn't even have to be that heavy. I make sure I connect with someone each day because then if I've connected with someone, even if it's like a bit of banter with my uni group of mates on WhatsApp for five, 10 minutes every night, right? I feel less of a need to fill that hole anymore that might have been there with sugar or with biscuits or with three hours on Instagram. And reflection, it's just a daily process of getting to know yourself with those simple two questions. So even if you just do one of those things a day, what happens is that you're not waiting for the goal to come to fruition, to start feeling good about yourself. And this is why I think goals, as you said in that previous podcast, where you said the scales can help give you a compass. I really like that. And I say sort of the goal can give you like a direction of travel, just point you into where you want to go, right? So it's, um, but let's not be too chained to that goal. These daily things you do each day, if you do those things every day, which take minutes, if you make a morning cup of tea and coffee, you know, for anyone listening right now, if all you do, right, is each day, every time you go and put your kettle on, or even just once, you pick up a weight and do five bicep curls on each arm. Once a day, even for just a few minutes, you make sure you've connected with someone. It could be your phone, your mum, it could be your phone, one of your friends, it could be send a message of kindness to someone, right? And if you just reflect for two or three minutes, each evening on how your day went within days you're going to feel like a different person your identity is going to start to change you're not going to be someone who can't stick to anything you're going to be someone who's like hey i'm the sort of person who can stick to health plan i'm the sort of person who can do things i'm the sort of person who three times a day shows me that i'm worth it i'm worth lifting a weight i'm worth connecting with someone who means something to me and i'm worth doing a bit of self-reflection on those things are so powerful because that's how you change your identity. When you change your identity, because real behavior change ultimately is actually identity change. When you really do that, the weight loss comes as a side effect. And so not only does it come as a side effect, but you're insulated. As you said, if you have a crap day and you nail two bags of crisps, okay, fine. What does it mean? It means you're human. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you just a human like the rest of us, right? And it, you know, what we don't want is that to sabotage. If our identity is so fragile that it's caught up on whether we can stick to something 100%, as soon as we put one foot offline, suddenly we're not worth anything anymore. No, change your identity through what you do each day. And then you're insulated. We all have bad days. I have days where I don't make the best choices for my health and well-being that I would ideally like. You know what? But that happened last night. I was on Zooms all day. I had a late live event and I didn't, you know, I, I'm much better when I eat early, mm. much better. When I finish eating by 7 p.m., I sleep better. My, you know, I've tracked this before as well. My heart rate is different. All kinds of things. I wake up like a different person the next day than even if I get the same amount of sleep, but I've eaten at 10 p.m. But last night I missed dinner. 
by the time I finished and got off and got out of the studio, it was half nine. I just couldn't resist. I was eating at 10, half 10, and I felt sluggish all day today because of it. But I won't beat myself up. I get it. I was a bit stressed. I wanted that nourishment. I'm going to try and make a different choice this evening. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I, I agree. And I've talked uh, on this podcast, we talk about habits lots. We did making and breaking habits in 2018, and we might be doing it again in 2021. And the whole point of a habit really is as much as you can try them out, it's the the success for me with a habit is when it stops being a habit and it's just your DNA. It's just who you are. It, you don't have to think about it. I feel like a habit you have to think about, oh, I've got to do that journaling. But if it just happens as a reflex, that's when it's taken root. And that's when it's really valuable. Yeah, like I think I, I, I think I may have said this to you last year, because it's one of the things I spoke about with my last book, but it's how even five minutes can be enough. And to, 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 to really build on that lift theme, I think lifting is something you don't have to do in a gym. You don't have to be worried about it. It's just, you know, we always feel good after we've lifted. You just feel good. You feel strong. You feel powerful. I have a routine every morning, you know? So, and it comes into what you're mentioning about habits. So I have a couple of things I do in the morning. Well, you know, I've got into a lovely rhythm with meditation at the moment, which is really helping me. But pretty soon after that, I'm in the kitchen and I make coffee. Now, Coffee is not something I need my PA to remind me about, or I need an alert in my Google calendar to go, don't forget, you've got to make a coffee at 6.30 a.m. Right? Right? So, okay, so what does that mean? That's no longer a behavior I'm trying to introduce. It's a habit. I don't think about it. It's an automatic thing that I do. And one of the best things that you can do with habits is a new behavior that you want to turn into a habit stick it on to an existing behavior that you do without thinking about it, stick it onto a habit, right? And just for a bit of, for, the, for people who are really interested in habit change, there's a reason for this. Every behavior we need, every behavior we do, any behavior needs a trigger, right? The trigger could be a memory. Oh, I remember I'm trying to lift weights at the moment or I'm trying to meditate. I'll do it when I remember. Okay, sure, that works. It just happens to be the most unreliable trigger of all. The next best trigger is a notification or a post-it note. So when my Google calendar comes and says, hey, you've got a, a podcast to record with Emma today. This is my reminder. Okay, cool. It's my little reminder that I've got to do that. That's pretty good. The best trigger for any behavior is literally when you piggyback it on to existing habits. So I make coffee. I've got a French press. I weigh out the coffee and I put a timer on for five, four or five minutes, which is how long I like coffee to brew for in those four to five minutes i don't go on instagram i don't go on email i do a bodyweight workout in my pajamas in my kitchen right it's effortless i haven't missed a day in about three years emma it's not because i'm more motivated than anyone else right because i understand just how toothbrushing is a habit that we built into our life we've made it easy we do it at the same time every day when we go into the bathroom we don't have to go, oh, where's the toothbrush? Where's the toothbrush? It's all there. It's all easy. That's why I have a dumbbell in my kitchen. So when I come in, I'm tired. Oh, I don't feel like it today. Oh, you know what? Come on, I'll just, I'll just do a few bicep curls. Before you know it, you've done a five-minute workout. I don't have to find time in my day. And you know what that does? Day in, day out, it changes who you are. You know, no matter how busy life has got, I've given myself a bit of time to myself because I'm worth it. So... Yeah, I mean, 
you know, we could do a whole other hour on habit change, but I, <laughs> I think it's about you can change who you are through what you do. It's not as hard as you think. It really isn't. And I think the thing I wanted to leave you and also the listeners on is this. I mean, obviously a lot of people have been on my weight loss journey with me and uh, because I've shared details from it. But this book, when I picked it up, I was really keen to get the physical copy as well because I'm, I'm old school like that. I pulled together my way of addressing my own issues with food and with my weight and all of those things from lots of different sources. And I was 41 when I gathered all that information. When I started reading this book, and I, was, I really thought this was going to be the case, but when I started reading this, it felt like everything that I had needed for my own uh, mental health and physical health is, is in this book. Because everything that I came to realize during my journey is what you've put in here with the addition of your expertise and some really great sources of information and fellow experts. So it, what I'm trying to say there is, I am so pleased to actually see, because I could never put that all together, what I've been through in a really helpful, constructive way, but you've, you've done that job, I think really brilliantly with this book. Emma, I'm, I've got a little tear coming out of my left eye. <laughs> I, I feel so touched that you feel like that because that's what I want. I want to provide people with a roadmap. I, I want people to know there is help. There is a way out of this constant yo-yo dieting cycle, right? There, there, there is a way. There's a compassionate way. And to hear someone like yourself, who's obviously battled this for a long period of time and has you know, very kindly shared some of that on, on this conversation with me today, to hear you say that, it gives me validation that, you know what, yeah, it, it, it is that. It, you, you've, you've done a good job. Like I, I've, this has been, I think the hardest book for me to have written. I've, I've spent, yeah, I, I wouldn't even want to fathom a guess how long it's, how many evenings, mornings, weekends I've, labored over this really to get the tone right to get the messaging right to make sure because i'm not someone who's been on the journey right i'm aware of that i can't say i'm you i've been there before and this is what i did no i don't i can't say that but that's the value that's your unique perspective the fact that you can be objective it's you don't have to be emotional about it and maybe that's why it is so well-rounded you know what I mean, that's a it's a great point. I hadn't really thought about that. That's, you know what, that is so profound. I've been, I've been really thinking about, sometimes I had a, a slight identity issue myself, like, you know, why, why should people read this from you? You've not been on that journey, but I really felt deeply I had something to offer, a fresh voice to, to, to offer this space. Yeah, I think you might be right. Maybe that's it. Maybe I've got a bit of detachment from it. But also the experience of seeing so many people who've shared their stories with me. And maybe that gives me a unique perspective, not a better perspective, just a unique perspective that hopefully a lot of people are going to find useful. Yeah, 
I really do think it's brilliant. So thank you so much. And also thank you so much for your time and for coming back on the show because you always, always just share so much brilliant insight and are just so open and, and helpful. And I really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure my listeners do too. Well, Emma, look, as I said to you off the mic, this is one of my favourite shows to come on. <laughs> I probably said, which shows do you want to, you know, which ones should we go? I said, look, let's make sure we get on Emma's if she, if she will have me again, because I really enjoy my chats with her. So thank Same. you so much for lots of me. Anytime. Listeners, the links to the book and Rongan and all the other things that you can possibly uh, click to find him will be in the show notes. But thank you so much for coming back. Thanks so much, Emma. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Bye.